0: Hello, everybody. Welcome. As we continue on in our study now of the Old Testament, we're in Genesis chapter 14 tonight. We're working through a chapter at a time. We've made great progress. We did the New Testament. We completed that in five years, and now we're in the Old Testament, so we got a 15-year run on this, and we're 14 weeks in. So all is well, and uh, Genesis will take a year. So, so it's that many chapters. All right? But well, that's good. And then the, the, f- the first five books will take us quite a while. After that, we'll make some progress. But it's good. Psalms, I'm not sure how we're going to do Psalms yet. I was looking at Psalms. Some of them are really short. So if they're real short. We might combine a few. But there's 150 Psalms. So that's three years' worth. <laughs> we'll see. That's okay. Right. We've got nothing but time till Jesus comes back. That's what I always say. right? So... We're in Genesis 14 now. Um, we remember the first 11 chapters of Genesis sort of cover four main events, and we looked at those. You know, it, it's the creation and the fall, uh, and uh, and then you know the uh, the flood, and then Tower of Babel, uh, dispersion and stuff. So there's four main events happening in there, and then these next chapters, beginning in chapter 12, moving forward kind of cover four of the main guys in, in history. So we're going to look at Abraham, and, and which is, was also Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. So um, if you're trying to remember, I like to sort of, um, some of the ways that I remember Bible is thinking about it like that, what was going on in, in, these, in these things. So if you think about Genesis and you can remember those two sets of information, when you're thinking about a verse that might have come of Genesis, you can kind of figure out where you ought to be looking. Who did it involve? it's if it's Abraham it's going to be in Genesis 12 through whenever and then if it's you know if it's Isaac he's going to have a chunk and if it's Jacob he'll have a chunk Joseph has a chunk first stories have a chunk so you start thinking about it that way Um, it just kind of helps in finding some uh, you know information in the Bible as we go through it you'll you'll have that information sort of stored up there and you can uh, then you can find it in the process, you you know, context, you start thinking about what was going on, who would have said that, you can begin to find things fairly simply. So right now we're looking at the life of Abram. We we saw, you know, um, that Abram's a a man of faith. Uh, He's walking the life of faith. He's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. We've already seen him, you know, sort of fail um, and kind of half do what he's supposed to do. There's been consequences for that already and um, at this point in time Uh, Abram and Lot, remember in our last chapter they had split um, company because they were too big to be together any longer and their herdsmen rather than working things out were quarreling and so Abram had said Lot you know take your pick, you go one way I'll go the other and Lot looked towards Sodom and thought that looked pretty cool and he chose that area and uh, sort of had the better watering grounds and everything looked better that way so he was drawn to what he sees, Abram says, "Fine." He goes the other way and remember the big thing I told you about Lot. Lot, in a lot of ways, you're going to see Lot as, and Lot wasn't a, a terrible person by any stretch of the imagination. But he, he often goes by, um, what he sees instead of walking by faith. His, he, he doesn't have his life dialed in with God. referenced to the fact that he has tents but no altars, and Abram has both. And um, he makes, uh, he often chooses the wrong direction and. That you know, probably corrupted in in Egypt by the things that were available there. When he sees and sees Sodom, he's drawn to Sodom. And, and um, by the time we get into Genesis chapter fourteen, he's not any longer in the plains outside Sodom. He's actually moved into the city. And um, and so though that was his choice, and that's where he's at in the process. Uh, but Abram is uh, you know still doing what he's supposed to do, and and. Um, You know he's listening to the Lord and he's taking care of his thing and following directions the best he can and moving along in the process but uh, what we're gonna see that happens in this chapter is we're gonna see Abram Abraham who uh, so far has been you know shown as a man of faith Um, in Genesis 14 he's gonna be shown as a warrior and a worshiper and uh, I think that's kind of interesting to add to the mix. So let's read through it. We'll talk about it briefly on the other end of our reading and we'll go from there. Lots of uh, interesting names in this chapter and um, if you don't like my pronunciation that is completely fine. I won't hold that against you. (laughs) You can pronounce them however you want. Um, But you will see me work through this list. But um, watch what happens now in Genesis 14. I'll be reading out of the NIV. Whatever translation you're using is fine. I think the notes are NIV as well. Here we go. At this time, I'm going to put my glasses on. Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasar, Kedorlaomer, Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, King of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bila, that is Zoar. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Sidim, the salt sea. For twelve years they had been subject to Kedor Laomer. But in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedor Laomer and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Raphaelites in Ashtaroth Karname the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Shave and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, near the desert. Then they turned back and went to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole ter- territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites, who were living in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is, Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim against kedor Laomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, since he was living in Sodom. One who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre the Amorite, a brother of Escol and Enner, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night Abram divided his men to attack them and he routed them pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. After Abram turned from defeating Kedorlaomer, And the kings allied with him. The king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people, keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Anner, Eskol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. Blessed be the word of the Lord. All right. So... Pretty interesting chapter, uh, things that are happening, and um, like I said, the, we get to see Abram here in these first verses um, a, a in, in sort of the kind of unexpected, I think, character of a warrior. So, the, the five city-states in the plain of Jordan had been subject for 12 years to the kings of the four eastern states, and they finally decided to revolt against them. And and uh, they rebelled against them. Normally, what that means is they quit paying them off. Um, that's what would happen. And so these five kings finally decided they were tired of paying off the four kings. And the, the big shot of the four kings was that guy, you know, nit Ned Leomer, K- Keddo. Uh, well, you know, I've said his name like 15 times, but uh, Kurd Kurdor Leomer, Kurdor Leomer. So um, they rebel against him. And uh, I guess they think that they don't need to keep playing, paying these tributes and everything. And so the four kings, then led by that guy, they come and invade the plain of Jordan to bring the five kings back into subjection. And, um, and uh, you know, by the way that we view sort of world things now, it's a pretty minor skirmish. But um, in that day, this was a, sort of a major international conflict. Nine kings and kingdoms involved in this thing. And you would think that five kings ought to be able to handle four kings. Especially when you consider the five kings have um, home field advantage, if you would. It's their plains, right? They should know their turf. But the, uh, the armies of these cities were, were just soundly defeated, defeated by the invading kings. Um, because apparently the five kings, they didn't even know their own land. They actually got trapped in their own tar pits, um, which you would think if they were a little better militarily, they would have used to their advantage instead of allowing themselves to be trapped in their own tar pits some of their guys were lost in the tar pits and every, the ones that were left um, fled for the hills, so much for the battle uh, and the people that are in the cities are taken captive by the four kings along with all the food, everything that's there, the kings go in, they take everything people and everything, they empty these cities and they take them all with them and um, they end up scooping up Lot and his family and his stuff as well. This all goes out with the kings because Lot by this time like I said had left the plains and was actually living inside he had moved all the way into the city the the you know the the temptations of the city the life in the city whatever had drawn him in um, and and he had chosen quite a different life than Abram had and uh, you know as I said you know Abram what we know about Abram you know he he lived in tents but he he had an altar remember I said that those altars they constructed um, reminded them Of worship and and of the Lord and that's why they were there and and you know that it kept them walking for him and looking to him for insight and direction you know Abram lived by faith not by sight and I've already said to you that Lot was the exact opposite and sort of is a picture of uh, and it will be a continuing picture of of what you know living life apart from the Lord looks like even though like I said he wasn't all bad lot but he keeps making these really bad decisions so so in effect um, and we just talked about this recently in, in Romans we looked at it not to be conformed to the world but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds Lot had been conformed to the world and, and when Sodom lost the war um, Lot was condemned with the world and he was condemned by being picked up with all his family and stuff and off they went they were now captives uh, of these four kings so uh, we get into verse 13 Someone escaped from that mess. Uh, you know, they didn't get them all. And he came and told Abram. I like um, I like the way Abram was called. It's Abram the Hebrew. I kind of like that. And these other three guys. These other um, sort of uh, uh, people who were probably similar to him, only not uh, Jewish. Not, obviously, they, they weren't. He was. Um, he was called, you know, Abram the Hebrew. He had had some sort of alliance with these other shepherds or whatever that were around him. But... Um, they had remained uninvolved in the situation but they had to know what was happening but they had just chosen to stay out of it so Abram separated from that but he's not isolated he's, he's independent so he's not involved in that mess but not indifferent and uh, with some of those local sheiks he had formed this alliance uh, that, that probably for just situations like this these four guys had uh, had some sort of alliance and. Um, they were sitting there when they got this news and when Abram heard that Lot had been taken captive, that's what got him involved in the process you'll have to know, so Abram basically, you know, he's a man of peace he's ready if something comes his way but he's not looking for a fight and uh, the only reason he decides to finally get involved in this is because Lot had been um, taken captive so he, he's not fighting for selfish reasons or for personal gain he, he fights because um, he, loves lots. he loves Lot, and he wants to help him. A couple of interesting things about verse 14, um, about Abram's men. Um, they were armed. I, I like that. Um, you, you know, it takes more than zeal and courage to win a war. You, you have to have effective equipment. And, and um, it, it, you know, there's a lot of times in, in the history of Israel where the people are not properly armed and it's a huge situation for them um, um, because they're not prepared to deal with the armies that are around them and without um, there are times in the you'll see as we keep moving forward where initially in those battles um, God fights for them because they're not armed but over time they're expected to be and they sometimes don't stay with the program and um, when we when we get into the life of Saul and uh, Jonathan when they start going to war uh, against the Philistines only Saul and Jonathan have swords the rest of the group is without a sword how about I mean, think about it without weapons to fight because the the enemies that have overcome them at that point have taken away all their blacksmiths pretty smart really um, so they they don't have any they have no way to make swords uh, they have nobody to take care of their swords they have nobody they're not allowed to and so they, they use whatever iron they have for, for, you know, farming and stuff. Pretty good way to keep a, a whole group at bay. Anyway, but these guys are armed. And I, I, I was thinking of how important that was. You know, when, when you can, you sort of relate some of these to life today, um, that we're, as believers, we're all engaged in a spiritual battle. And um, we've been given effective equipment um, in the armor of God, but we need to be aware of it. We need to apply it to our lives. And... Uh, So if you don't know about the armor of God you need to look at Ephesians 6 10 through 18 but you know we have a we have a belt of truth and we have a breastplate of righteousness and we have a helmet of salvation and we have shoes of peace and we have a sword of a spirit and and uh, uh, you know we have some we have some good stuff but we need to be applying it to our lives and using it to be effective in our battle and these these weapons that we have the Bible says are spiritual they're not carnal Um, And we're to use them under the operation and anointing of the Holy Spirit. And that uh, really in in this battle, our most effective weapons are the Bible, the Word of God, and prayer. Uh, And um, these are all sort of contained in the armor of God that we have. But just like Abraham walked, these are all part of our walk of faith. Another thing about these guys that we learned from verse 14 is that they were trained. So, So not only were they equipped... Um, with the, the the equipment they needed, they were trained. And again, this is another very important part of our our, our, our own spiritual battle. Um, we're to be prepared. We're, we're to be aware. Um, and, and really it's it's one of the things that the local church is supposed to be doing, is, is helping everybody be trained for the life that we live, for the battle that we're engaged in, and to be aware that it happens, and to teach you, um, you know, your Bible and how to know it better and how to study it and to encourage you to do that and how all these things work together and how we're supposed to you know live and all that stuff is important and so that's part of what we do especially you know, on nights night we, like tonight we come together and we learn those things and we encourage one another and we fellowship um, all of these things are important so Abrams guys are ready 318 guys and I don't know if you think that's a big number or not but that was the number 318 guys I wonder how many guys the kings have um, but but 318 now that may not be including the guys that are going to go with him the other the other three sheiks the local sheiks probably have their own guys too, and and they're going to join Abram in this whole deal for the sake of this alliance they have with Abram so these guys go after the kings and, and uh, they are such a uh, incredible force um, that they completely rout the enemy they chase them for a hundred miles these kid guys just take off um, they free all the captives and they recover all the spoils so complete victory they get it all back every bit of it they get they get it all back and they chase these guys out and there you go so we see um, you know Abram successful in this battle and, and um, this man of faith also a mighty warrior after the battle so we start to move into these last verses in Genesis. An interesting thing happens. So Abram comes back, and he's been in charge of this battle. So, so in effect, now you have to realize that um, every all the spoils now are, are effectively his, and these guys that he's gone with. They he, they went out and won them. So the guys who lost them have no claim over them any longer, in effect, and. Uh, Abram's aware of this. That's a pretty standard thing back at the time. So he's met when he returns from, uh, by two kings. He's met by the king of Sodom. And he's met by the king of Salem. And, and uh, the king of Sodom uh, offers to Abram all of the spoils, which weren't even his anyway. But he offers to him all the spoils as long as he gets the people back. Melchizedek, though, comes to... Um, Abram and offers him bread and wine. So I, I hope you're making some connections with some of the things that we know. And, and uh, Abram um, rejects uh, the king of Sodom's offer. But he accepts the bread and the wine from Melchizedek. And to Melchizedek, the Melchizedek, he gives a tenth or a tithe of all the spoils. And, and um, very symbolic what's happening here. And there's some, some pretty interesting spiritual truths that are taking place. So when Abram comes back from this battle, uh, he has to choose between two kings who represent two completely different ways of life. Sodom, a wicked city, we know that. Um, they represent the, the sort of dominion of this world system and its appeal to the flesh. And it, uh, that, The name Bera, who's the king, it means gift and, and it's sort of like uh, the, the idea is that the the world bargains for your allegiance but at the same time Sodom it means burning so um, you gotta be careful how you choose because what happens is that if you if you if you bow down to Bera and the gift that is offered to you everything that you live for will burn up one day and um, guess who's gonna have that happen? Lot. The whole deal gone. Burns up. Melchizedek on the other hand means um, righteousness and Salem means peace. Now, this, this is significant in the process because in Hebrews 7 and in Psalm 110, um, both of these connect Melchizedek with Jesus, who's known as the king of peace and the king of righteousness. So, um, Mel- Melchizedek in Abram's day um, is, is symbolic, if you would, of Jesus as our king and priest. Um, today who enables us to enjoy righteousness and peace and certainly um, it's not a coincidence that bread and wine is what's symbolic here and we see that in our own understanding of all that that Jesus has done as we remember him um, as a picture of the Lord's death for us on the cross and his de- defeating death and his resurrection and so in effect when Abram says no to Bera the king of Sodom and yes to Melchizedek he's he's, he's it's a statement of faith saying you know uh, take the world give me Jesus and uh, Lot should have made the same decision and he won't in the process so it's not a decision that Abram could make for Lot Lot having been rescued and saved once again should have chosen as Abram does but he doesn't also Abram doesn't um, impose these convictions on the guys who went with him his allies Aner, Eskel and Mamre Um, if they want to take part of the spoils that's their business he wouldn't criticize them in the process but he does take it and, and you know again the, the world's trying to offer to Abram something that he already it's already his by right this is the tricks of the world and um, Abram says you know what I, I don't want anything that comes from you because I, I never want you to be able to say that 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 you had anything to do with what I've got everything that I have comes from God it's all about him and that's the way it's gonna stay so that's what happens in that whole process now the, the last thing to talk about just briefly could be covered and we talked about him in our study in the New Testament Melchizedek interesting guy uh, because in the Old Testament here um, he's, he's really only talked about uh, here in this verse and in uh, an, one other verse in the Psalms and that's it um, and yet when the writer of Hebrews is trying to talk about the importance of Jesus as the great high priest and a superior priesthood to the Levitical priesthood, um, the the one that we were waiting for, the once and for all priesthood, he reaches way back into history and pulls out Melchizedek uh, who who really um, is interesting because uh, Melchizedek was a man, let's make sure we know that, so he had a mother and father but what he doesn't have for a king is any genealogy whatsoever. There's no record of where he came from how he got there and, and there's also no recorded instrument of um, how he left the scene if you would. So, so what he appears from the way they're used to looking at things is someone who came out of nowhere and and they have no idea how he ended up and so um, um, you know, understand that's how he appears because there's nothing recorded about him but, but he, he wasn't an angel or some superhuman creature um, nor, nor do I believe was he a theophany of Jesus, uh, an Old Testament period of Christ. He was a real man, a real king, a real priest, in a real city. But as far as the records are concerned, um, he wasn't born and he didn't die. And, and so in that way, he's a picture of Jesus. Um, but, but remember, Melchizedek was a real man. And, and Not that Jesus wasn't, but Jesus came on the scene in a miraculous way. Fully man, fully God. And, and died in a miraculous way and defeated death in a miraculous way. All those things happened um, because, you know, Calvary wasn't the end for Jesus. He rose again, defeated death, and he lives uh, and he continues to live. And so um, this picture of Melchizedek, Melchizedek you see is just that because of, of no recorded beginning or ending. The, the writer of Hebrews pulls back and looks at him as the sort of uh, understanding of what this whole process looks like. Um, with Jesus as the great priest and a, and, a, and a superior priesthood to the Levitical priesthood, which the Jews had up till that point in time. So, um, those are the sort of the main points of Genesis 14. A lot of neat stuff. I like to think about some of those things, though, and, and have you think about them and see the picture of the importance of the choices that we make, how the world, you know, tempts us with, uh, with things, but our allegiance to the world doesn't end well. Uh, and, um, how God always has something better for us. And, and so we want to keep our focus on Him and be people that, that you know, are people of faith, not sight. Lot, lot's the picture of doing it the other way. So uh, that's plenty for tonight. Um, if you're watching on the video, thank you for doing that. Love to see you here at some point soon, but we'll call it an evening right there.